Welcome to the Lone Mama Book Club. My name is Mara, and I'm a new mom to the coolest little dude, Rowan. Motherhood can be so many things at once. Beautiful, heartbreaking, joyful, frustrating, unifying, and isolating. I created this club to build a community amongst book-loving moms and pave a way for us to discuss some of our favorite or not-so-favorite reads. Our books focus on coming of age, womanhood, and motherhood. My hope is that this community will help make even just one fellow mama not feel so alone. Although our journeys may look different, we are all in this together. So take some new time, grab a book, and let's dive in. I went back and forth several times trying to decide which book should be the first one for this series. I decided that it would be pertinent to review the novel that really kickstarted this whole idea. Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens was first published way back in 2018. It does feel like forever, doesn't it? It had been on my personal reading list for quite some time, but I didn't get a chance to read it until this past winter. This was the first book I read after having my son, and it had to wait until he was officially sleep-trained. If you know, you know. So Where the Crawdads Sing is a fictional novel that follows the life of a woman named Miss Catherine Daniel Clark, known to all as Kaya. Kaya is an outcast who lives out in the marshland of Barkley Cove, a fictitious town based off of coastal North Carolina. It is a gut-wrenching, coming-of-age tale and a beautiful ode to nature, all with a murder mystery expertly intertwined. This story bounces between Kaya's childhood, which starts in 1952 at age six, and also the potential murder of a prominent figure in town named Chase Andrews, where the investigation is going on in 1969. So eventually, both of these stories merge into that point. This novel is beautifully crafted and will leave readers reevaluating their own codes of ethics and morality. I couldn't discuss this book without talking about the author, Delia Owens. She has a bachelor's degree in zoology and a doctorate in animal behavior. Who better to have written a novel focusing on how beautiful yet brutally impartial nature is? Miss Owens does it justice. Her writing is detailed and poetic, and she creates such a vivid picture that immerses you fully into her world. She has easily become one of my all-time favorite authors for this reason. If someone were to ask me the age-old question of which famous person would you have tea with if you could, it would be Delia for me, hands down. Which I think she lives in North Carolina, so maybe dreams can come true. Crawdads opens to Kaya's mother walking out on her and her family. Slowly, all four of Kaya's older siblings leave as well. We are shown that her father is a disgraced alcoholic who is emotionally and physically abusive, and we have to watch as Kaya, at only a young age of six, forces herself to become invisible around him. Eventually, he disappears, never to return or to be heard from again. We are taken through her journey of abandonment and loneliness and see as she adapts to her situation and eventually thrives on her own. The prologue lays the intricate groundwork for what this book is going to be about. It compares marsh with swamp, as they are not the same. To quote, Marsh is not swamp. 
Marsh is a space of light where grass grows in water and water flows into the sky. Within the marsh, true swamp crawls into low-lying bogs. Swamp water is still and dark, having swallowed the light in its muddy throat. Life decays and reeks and returns to the rotted duff, a poignant wallow of death begetting life. A swamp knows all about death and doesn't necessarily define it as tragedy, certainly not a sin. Purposefully, we see the book divided into two parts, the first, labeled Marsh, and the second, Swamp. Part one, Marsh, follows Kaya from childhood into womanhood. Part two, Swamp, follows the murder trial of Chase Andrews and eventually discloses who actually killed Chase. This section also contains the death of several characters, Scupper, Jumpin', and Kaya herself. So, what do we love about this book? Besides everything. I'm kidding. Or am I? Anyway, for me, it's the writing, the detail, and the moving portrayal of survival, womanhood, and motherhood. We deal with several different mother figures throughout this novel. We have Kaya's own mother, Tate's late mother, Chase's mother, even Kaya herself. Now, Kaya never had children of her own, but we can't disregard the fact that she was a mother to the wildlife that surrounded her marsh, that surrounded her home. We also have Miss Mabel, which let's give a proper shout out to because I adore this character. Maybe it could be argued that Kaya would have survived without Jumpin' and Mabel, but she would not have flourished. Mabel, with the assistance of Jumpin', made sure that Kaya had cash, clothes, some food, and helped Kaya face womanhood and beyond. It goes to show, without a doubt, that motherhood goes beyond shared blood. Mabel is an homage to all the women out there who may not have a blood connection to a child, who may be outside of that textbook definition of mother, but through love are exactly that and more. And then there's the mother above all mothers, also known as Mother Nature. It is Mother Nature, the earth, that ultimately teaches Kaya how to live, how to be. It is the one constant in her life and never fails her, which brings up an important question of nature versus nurture. When Kaya is being held in jail during the murder trial, and I'm referencing chapter 42 here, she starts to think on that potential that she could be facing the death penalty if found guilty. She does not seem bothered by the idea of death. What disturbs her is the idea of being killed by someone on a set schedule. Interesting that she's thinking about this now as she did the same thing to Chase. By nature, I do believe that Kaya is a smart, thoughtful, and overall kind person. She should also not be mistaken for anything but a predator, because she is certainly not prey. And there really was no nurturing in her life. Empathy is a learned behavior and is taught through observing others. Since she severely lacked social interaction, how could she have ever learned that? All that she was exposed to was the brutal justice of the natural world. So what do we not love about this book? Well, I'm just going to dive right in and say I did not love that Kaya murdered Chase. I was so distraught that this town would turn against Kaya so strongly that they would go so far out of their way to tie her to the scene of the crime. 
I truly did not think that she was guilty. In a way, I underestimated Kaya, just like everyone else in town did her entire life. I thought that she wouldn't have been able to pull something like this off. I mean, she was always afraid to leave the marsh. She never really wanted to go in town and interact with people. So this initial trip to Greensville was a big leap for her already. So how would she go out there, come back, boat out, murder chase, and then get on a bus to head back out there just to return the next day, and all while in disguise? To me, it just seemed so out of her comfort zone and safety net that I didn't think it would be possible. However, one of Owen's main points throughout the book is how nature can be beautiful but brutal, that societal codes of ethics does not apply. Nature is survival of the fittest. Animals must play by their baser instinct to survive. And Kaya is one with the marsh. Time and time again, Owens shows us that animals will do whatever it takes to protect themselves from harm. How could I have not known that Kaya was going to eliminate the threat to her territory and well-being? I'm interested to see and to know if any of you were in the same boat as me there. So yes, I underestimated Kaya, but more importantly, I let my own moral compass influence my view of Kaya and the storyline. And it is my own morals that make me upset that she killed someone. I really loved Kaya. She was resourceful, strong, and loving despite the horrors of her childhood. I really didn't want her to be guilty. And as I read the last chapter, which reveals the truth, it was like a punch to the gut. Brilliant writing, but a punch nonetheless. And it made me ask myself, well, can I still love Kaya? Kaya would go so long throughout her entire life without touching someone or even being touched in return. How awful must it have been for her to have someone try and force themselves on her and then to be beat like her abusive father beat her mother, older siblings, and even her in the past. There was unresolved trauma that ignited an inextinguishable fear within her. Kaya was determined not to live the rest of her life in fear. She even contemplated walking into the ocean and drifting away. She honestly rather would be free in death than forever looking over her shoulder. And I think it's in this moment that Kaya finally understands how and why her mother left and never returned. And I believe she really does come to peace with this. Going back to the powerful meaning of the prologue, where the light, life-filled marsh is compared to the dark, dead swamp, life only exists because there's death. Life is finite. There is light and life in each bog, in each individual, in the world as a whole. But that light cannot exist without some darkness. There is both good and bad in the world, in each individual. But looking at nature's perspective, nature doesn't ask questions or pass judgment. Good and bad doesn't necessarily exist in the wild. Mother nature is neutral. Living creatures must survive based on evolution and their own instincts. There is no societal ideas of good or bad in the wild. Kaya is an extension of mother nature herself. Now, 
I also stumbled upon several readers out there that felt that the courtroom scene was so sterile compared to the captivating words Owens used throughout the rest of the book. I believe this was completely intentional, and I appreciated it. I liked how direct and bland the courtroom scenes were. I felt like they moved quickly, which is exactly what I wanted. I wanted the trial to be over as I was in extreme suspense. To me, it makes sense that there would be limited color or detail in the courtroom. The room was devoid of nature. The only occupants beyond the man-made grandeur of the courtroom were the townspeople, the same townspeople that ignited and harassed Kaya her entire life. Not to go on too big a tangent here, but something I want to bring up is the turkey feather incident. Do you all recall when Tate and Kaya are playing the feather game with one another? When he leaves a rare bird feather on a tree stump in Kaya's yard and Kaya returns the favor and back and forth they go for a while. Well, one of the feathers that Tate leaves is a wild turkey feather. Upon receiving the feather, Kaya comments that up until recently, turkeys used to be one of her favorite birds, at least until the day she came across a flock of turkeys that were pecking and clawing at a female turkey on the ground. Kaya described that the hen looked confused as to why her flock would be attacking her. She recalls that the hen somehow got brambles stuck in her wings, making it so that she could no longer fly. It's quite common among birds and even other animals that if a member of their flock becomes different, and this is typically hurt or maimed, the flock will kill it to prevent predators from attacking. The flock does end up killing the hen. And the scene actually continues on and describes Kaya later on in the evening back at home where boys from town have come onto her property and trespassed and are calling names at her, harassing her from outside. And they start playing this really immature game of running up to her door and tagging it or slapping their palms against the door. Kaya was frightened and recalls that every tag, every slap was, and I quote, a stab in the turkey hen's heart. Why do I bring this scene up? Kaya believes that she is the hen in the townspeople's eyes, in society's eyes, that she is different from them and they shun her, would harm her if they could. Taking the meaning of this scene one step further, we could say that the townspeople were right to suspect Kaya as a threat to their flock. Kaya did harm one of their own. However, it's a classic Oedipus tale, right? And I'm not talking about the gross stuff with the mother and father. I'm talking about the prophecy. If the townspeople had taken Kaya in, she would not be the same person that she ends up being. She most likely would have never murdered Chase. So the townspeople, by fearing how different Kaya was and therefore shunning her, created the very thing they feared all along. I have to say going off of this, when the murder trial is happening, that not only did I feel like this was so out of character of Kaya to have done this, right, to have made all those trips and plotted all of this out, But I really did think that Owens was trying to make a point about outcasts in society to show that outcasts are typically the ones that get blamed for extreme events. Another point to bring up from this is that it's also extremely ironic that the very societal framework, in this case the legal system that Kaya rages against, actually saves her. The townspeople's baser instincts tell them that she's guilty. The group knows that something is wrong, but the legal system and law of the court makes proving this impossible. 
since there was no evidence that specifically tied Kaya to the crime scene. There were no footprints, no fingerprints, no DNA. The witnesses were too far for it to be 100% accurate, and it shows in their testimony. There were no weapons, nada. Which, how eerie is it that Chase's footprints disappeared? His death literally wipes away his footprints, or his impact even, on the world. The novel explicitly states that he eventually fades from people's memory, and this case is forgotten. This book is so enriched with meaningful scenes and amazing symbolism, I feel like I could literally open it to any page at random, point to a paragraph, and be able to talk about whatever scene I land on for at a minimum of 15 minutes. But we all know we don't have time to sit and listen to a 100-hour podcast on one story, however lovely that story is. I therefore chose two topics, if you will, to sort of deep dive into. I encourage all of you listening to share your thoughts on this novel. Let's have a conversation, and it can be on something we discussed in this podcast or even something that we didn't get around to. More details on how to do this to come, but for now, let's deep dive in. So the first deep dive I want to talk about are the poems, specifically that poem by Thomas More, the poem A Ballad, The Lake of the Dismal Swamp. And I also want to talk about the fact that Kaya is Amanda Hamilton. I had never come across Thomas More's The Lake of the Dismal Swamp before reading Crawdads, but I have to say I love it. Tate reads this poem when he's in high school and can't help but associate it with Kaya. And it really does fit Kaya's character perfectly and also provides some major foreshadowing, not only for Tate and Kaya's relationship, but also on how Kaya will die. Reading this poem, I couldn't help but wonder the significance around a cypress tree. Trees have a very powerful, symbolic meaning across many cultures. Take my son's name, for example. My son's name is Rowan, and the Rowan tree symbolizes good omens. Now, a cypress tree can often be found near cemeteries and is associated with immortality and mourning. So the line, and I'll hide the maid in a cypress tree, is expressing that the maid will be hidden in a place of immortality so that death cannot touch her. The day Kaya dies, she is late coming home from collecting specimens in the marsh. Tate goes out to find her and sees that she is slumped over, lying on her knapsack and drifting peacefully in her boat. He quickly realizes that she is dead, and this poem, all these years later, comes back to him. How he wishes he could have saved her from death and still have her near. A fun side note here is the knapsack. Kaya received this knapsack from her father when he was in his one and only stable stretch. It was the only thing that she ever received from him, and she used it to store all of the items she collected around the marsh. When she received it, it was described as a sturdy bag, one that would last a lifetime. And it did. Kaya used this bag her entire life, all the way up to the day she died. The reason I also want to bring up Amanda Hamilton, which is the pen name Kaya writes her poetry under, uh, is because even the reader isn't in on this secret. We've seen Kaya's thoughts, actions, and life laid bare before us, and yet there are two things that do not come to light until the very last chapter. One is that she murdered Chase, and two, that she's Amanda Hamilton. 
Maybe it's to let the reader question, do you ever really know someone? Even Tate, who had been with her for over 40 years, never knew she was a published poet or the one who murdered Chase. As for deep dive number two, I feel like it's piggybacking off of what we were just talking about. Um, But I have to talk about the last chapter labeled Firefly. Kaya brings up the dishonest signals of fireflies twice in the novel. Three if you count the poem she wrote titled Firefly. Kaya divulges that female fireflies will deceive unknown male fireflies, usually of a different species, to lure them in, making the male think that they're going to mate, only to have the female eat them. This is exactly what Kaya does to kill Chase. She lures him under false pretense to the fire tower late in the night and kills him. After her death, Tate finds the only evidence that could tie her to the scene of the crime hidden underneath the wood stove in a loose floorboard. That evidence is the seashell necklace that Kaya had given to Chase. This necklace disappeared. It wasn't on Chase's body when he was found in the swamp. Another incriminating document would probably be the poem Firefly, written by Kaya as Amanda Hamilton, and describes Chase's last moments and his death. Tate goes on to burn all of the poems and replaces the shell back on the beach, where it blends into all the other shells that lay there, seemingly normal and forever hidden by the marsh. What's interesting is in one of the first chapters of the book, when they're starting to investigate what happened to Chase, they look around and there are shells. And I believe it's the sheriff who says shells are the best secret keepers because they cover everything up. And so I find it interesting that we open with that just to end with Tate putting the shell back onto the beach, you know, the one incriminating shell to be masked by all the others and be kept a secret. So in this scene, Mother Nature is once again, and really for the last time, taking care of her daughter, Kaya. So to wrap up this podcast, I thought it would be interesting for me to follow through on my challenge that I issued earlier on, where I said, I can open up crawdads and point to a paragraph and have something to talk about uh, no matter where I might land. Um, So I promise it's not going to be for 15 minutes, um, but I did open up to chapter 21, which is titled Coop. And this is where the Cooper Hawk comes to visit. So it's been a few days since Kaya has kind of given up on Tate, right? Tate goes off to college. He's over in Chapel Hill. He's getting all sorts of opportunities, but he had promised he would be back July 4th, and he doesn't show. There's not even word from him. And Kaya's a mess. She hasn't gotten out of bed. She hasn't even fed her goals. She hasn't fed herself. She's completely heartbroken. And so she looks up and she sees a rare Cooper Hawk outside of her door. And it motivates her to kind of jumpstart her life again. And I really always loved reading that chapter because, and I don't know if anyone out there has or believes in signs, but uh, I have a particular sign 
that anytime I see it, I know things are going to be okay. Um, and that is actually a hawk. It always has been. And what's really interesting, as I know earlier on, I also talked about my son's name, Rowan, and how it means good omen. And for us, when we first got pregnant, my husband saw a hawk. He parked his car at work, got out, and saw a hawk right there, red-tailed hawk. And he took a picture, sent it to me, and she kept showing up day after day after day um, until you know we confirmed that we were pregnant. And what's crazier is that throughout the entire pregnancy, I regularly saw hawks all the time, whether it was at work, in our backyard. Um, and it just really made me know, or it helped me to know that things were going to be okay. And in my gut, I just knew that I was carrying my son and and he was going to bring so much joy and light into our life. And so it really helped to pick his name as well. Um, so we went with Rowan and it, it really does fit him. So again, I won't go on for 15 minutes, but I think that this book is wonderful. It's magical. It's suspenseful. It's heartbreaking. It's all those things that we've reviewed. And I really enjoyed going over it with y'all. And I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it either. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to follow. The best thing you can do to support this podcast is to send it to another mama or friend. I would love for y'all to get involved in the conversation. To do so, you can DM Lone Mama Book Club on Instagram, or you can leave a comment on the website, which there will be a link to in the show notes of this episode. You can also email me directly at info at lonemamabookclub.com. Finally, if you were moved as I was by the beautiful landscape of coastal North Carolina and want to take action to help preserve the wildness of this area, I have linked several charities in the show notes as well as on the website under the donate page. In addition, this book deals with poverty and hunger, and therefore I added an additional charity, Feeding America. I've got a special spooky episode coming out around Halloween. To be sure that you get in on that, follow me on Instagram and subscribe. Looking forward to next time. For now, later mamas.